Dave Sattler here, one of the pastors at North Shore Alliance Church. Thank you for joining us in person, and thank you for those who are joining us today online. It's wonderful to be together. Today is the first of a mini-series on missions. To start 2023, we begin with a two-week series that I'm affectionately calling a mission fortnight. Recently, I came across this great quote in a book that I've been reading called Faith for Exiles by David Kinneman and Mark Matlock. It says this, God shares his grand mission with us and wants us to live out his mission with others too because God loves to love with us. This is God's mission that we're invited into. God loves to love others with us. And I love it. This mission's fortnight grows out of God's heart for North Shore Alliance Church and the people he's called together here to uniquely live out his mission in our city and spilling out from here to around the world. Micah is a minor prophet with a major message. His career spans some 55 years in 7th century B.C., His assignment from God is to call out and to call back the people of God. Micah's message, God still agrees to be your God, to dwell with you, and to bless you. But things have gone terribly wrong in your covenant relationship with him, and it's your fault. And if you don't repent, turn back to worship, obey, and serve your God, there will be consequences. In Micah 5, 1 and 2, the prophet delivers this word, marshal your troops now, city of troops, for a siege is laid against us. They will strike Israel's ruler on the cheek with a rod, but you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins from of old and from ancient times. Its leaders have become obsessed with wealth and power. So God permits Jerusalem to be surrounded by its enemies. It's why King Hezekiah has to build this or have this water tunnel built under the city of Jerusalem to provide for the people while they're under siege. But its king could not save it. Powerful Jerusalem would be destroyed. And in contrast, tiny Bethlehem would be the birthplace of the only king who could save the people. And 700 years before Jesus is born, Micah accurately predicts this. God's people would have learned about this prophecy of the Messiah to be born in Bethlehem. They would have learned about it in Sabbath school for seven centuries. Yet, when the time comes for Jesus to be born in Bethlehem, very few recognize him. Ironically, it's a group of strangers, astrologers from faraway Persia on their quest to find baby King Jesus. They are the ones that quote Micah 5, chapter 2, verse, Matthew chapter 5, verse 2, back to King Herod and to the Jewish religious leaders. With messages of warning and hope, in Micah we see both God's righteous judgment and God's incredible love, both in screen. And God gives his people countless chances to repent. Yet, these opportunities must not be taken for granted. Never a cosmic pushover, almighty God 
must confront sin, but still loves the sinner. And this tension is a major theme of the minor book, prophet book of Micah. And so today we focus on Micah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. I'm going to read them for us now. This is the Lord's case against Israel. Listen to what the Lord says. Stand up, plead my case before the mountains. Let the hills hear what you have to say. Hear, you mountains, the Lord's accusation. Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a case against his people. He is lodging a charge against Israel. My people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. I brought you up out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you, also Aaron and Miriam. My people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, plotted and what Balaam, son of Beor, answered. Remember your journey from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with a thousand rams, with ten thousand rivers of olive oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for the words of the prophet Micah thousands of years ago. God, I ask now that you would come and move me out of the way and come and speak to us by your spirit. God, we pray today that you would use these words, your word, to shape our hearts after you and to shape our hearts in your mission. God, we ask that you would come now and speak to us. We are hungry to hear from you. In Jesus' name and for his glory, amen. Plop, right down here in the middle of Micah, a courtroom appears. The Lord has a case against his people, and the mountains are even called in as witnesses. God is judge, and his people are on trial. What on earth for? Well, throughout the book of Micah, the prophet exposes a laundry list of offenses, including fraud, theft, greed, debauchery, oppression of the poor and vulnerable, hypocrisy, heresy, idolatry, injustice, extortion, lying, and murder. Instead of blessing as God designed it, the people had become a curse to others, to themselves, and to God. Israel must not naively assume that God's covenant relationship with them will continue if there is no repentance or renewed commitment on their part to worship, obey, and serve him. God takes a remarkable task to tack and begins his defense with two rhetorical questions, effectively putting himself on the stand first. Have I done something bad? Have I mistreated you? God asks. This both reveals God's tender love and care for his people and demonstrates a, wide, a wise mediation and conflict resolution strategy. 
To disarm, to disarm defensiveness, it's often helpful not to launch right into an outright frontal attack. I don't know about you, but I'm sadly pretty good at that. Outright frontal attacks are not the best way to disarm defensiveness. Next, God reminds the people to remember how in the past he acted graciously on their behalf. And he cites four memorable examples. One, the Exodus. God has redeemed them from slavery in Egypt. Second, God's provision of leadership through the provision and the raising up of Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. Third example, God's deliverance from the terrible curse of Balak, king of Moab. If you've never read that story, it's in Numbers. It's good afternoon reading. I encourage you to have a look at it today. And four, how God miraculously guided their journey across the Jordan River and into the Promised Land. All these instances are meant to remind how God has kept his side of the covenant relationship with his people. Proof that in no way does the fault for the broken down relationship lie with God. Perhaps Mike is imagining Israel's defense, or maybe he's quoting some actual responses he's heard from the people on the streets of Jerusalem. And one can just hear the people stewing, how can we fix this? If God wants us to bow a little lower or to raise our hands a little higher in public displays of worship, well, we can do that. And how about we bring some more costly, choice, burnt offerings to the temple? If it's bigger or more extravagant sacrifices God requires, then we can surely pay him off. Problem is, God cannot be bought or bribed with showy or expensive gifts. And like one commentator says, God is far more interested in the person than any gift one might bring. One's character and behavior are what matter to God. And I wonder, have I also misunderstood what pleases God? Maybe I have become more concerned about what pleases me. I may have given a lot, put tons of energy into our worship services, even sacrificed much for God, but what's my heart truly like underneath it all? What is it that God really wants from us? Verse 8 forms a mission manifesto for the people of God. It's here God shows us what is good and what God requires of us. And it appears there are three basic things God wants from each of us. To act justly means to seek right social relationships based on God's principles of human dignity. How fair are we in our dealings with others? How we treat all kinds of others really matters to God. To love mercy. Well, this is a little more tricky. In fact, the modern NIV might be a rough translation. Beyond mercy, it's more about practicing loyalty, loving kindness, or faithfulness to God and others, no matter the circumstance. How compassionate, how loyal are we in our relationships? To walk humbly with your God has to do with our interior life that spills over into how we carry ourselves. Micah says to walk humbly involves regular repentance and surrender to God, not doing things our way, but a careful, diligent, non-flashy following after God. 
And it's my belief that these three basics from Micah ought to shape and govern the hearts of God's people on his mission. Beyond mere ritual obedience, God wants our love. And I, like I said earlier, God loves to love others along with us. Well, as you can imagine, it's time now to land the plane on a few application points. And I have to warn you, fasten your seatbelts. Some of these, it may be a hard landing today. Some of these points that I feel God's put on my heart today are hard-hitting. So the first application I offer today is this. There's a call to God's people to protect the poor and vulnerable. Prophet Micah confronts the people with their blind sin of asking God to help them while they continue to ignore the plight of the needy, marginalized, and oppressed among them. To act justly means we never condone behavior that takes something that rightfully belongs to another. And the dark doctrine of discovery lurks in our history. A legal principle that European countries extinguished indigenous sovereignty and acquired the underlying title to indigenous people's lands upon discovering them. It's easy, this side of history, to point the finger at our forefathers. But truthfully, had we been born then, the lure of personal advancement at the expense of the vulnerable would likely have driven us too. What will we learn from the sins of our past? Foreigners, slaves, orphans, widows, the poor are always susceptible and at great risk of being taken advantage of by others. And people in positions of power preying on the weak is never God's plan. And followers of Jesus must stand vehemently against this. The justice and peace of God feels so elusive, yet so needed in our lives and in our world. And we are confronted with some very clear applications right in our own backyards. What is our responsibility to the poor and vulnerable in our city? How does acting justly impact decisions we make about property redevelopment? The jobs we take, how and where we shop, and how we think about, do business with, relate to, and love our Squamish and Tsleil-Waututh Nation indigenous neighbors. For Christ followers here on the North Shore, what does God-honoring property ownership look like when many in our community struggle mightily with housing insecurity? How do we steward well the resources God has given us without further oppressing those who are not as fortunate materially as we are? Here's what I know. We must always resist the urge to cheat the vulnerable in order to enhance our own social or financial position. And as we act justly, we experience more deeply the heart of God and we ourselves become changed. And because protecting the poor and vulnerable among us is so countercultural, when we do it, Jesus shines through and many are able to see him. Second application point I offer today is this. We are called to uphold dignity for all. The Christian story touts the dignity of all people. 
Not because identity or worth are self-determined, but by the simple fact that every human being is made in the image of God. And we are to treat everyone with dignity, no matter their appearance, their ability, their behavior, their social standing, or their accomplishments. The last talked about pandemic of the past decade has been the heartbreaking opioid crisis that has particularly rocked Vancouver. A recent World Health Organization study found that people with drug addiction had the highest level of social disapproval or stigma of any class of individual anywhere in the world. My family and our church community has lost loved ones in this crisis. And I've been trying to get my head around it to understand it more. In his 2020 book, Overdose, Heartbreak and Hope in Canada's Opioid Crisis, local author, UBC law professor, Benjamin Perrin, who I read the whole book and I was shocked to learn, he reveals his Christian faith on the second to last page. And he writes this. I remembered back to why I started looking into the opioid crisis in the first place. A prayer to God for a heart of compassion for the people affected by it. The same Jesus who I follow laid his hands on people with leprosy who no one else would come near them. And then Perrin asked a probing diagnostic question. Are more professing Christians willing to similarly love and care for people who use drugs rather than judge and condemn them? It's a well-known fact that the antidote for addiction is connection. And I have to say that God has equipped the Christian church for this better than any other community on this planet. Yet, our commitment to the mission of Jesus is tested when God places people we consider different or difficult into our lives. How much mercy do we have for people with whom we disagree or people who simply annoy us or people who have wronged us or people who are so different that being in their presence makes us feel uncomfortable? And I believe the litmus test for how deeply Jesus has penetrated our hearts is how we respond to people like that. Will we uphold dignity for all people? See every person made in the image of God, our creator. The Christian story confronts our stereotypes and pokes at our selfish attitude toward relationships. Do we only associate with people whom we think will help get us somewhere? God has brought many new Canadians and people struggling with mental health and addiction right into our church community. Will we strike up conversations even when it's awkward? Will we make room in our lives, our hearts, for people different from us? Or will we play it safe and connect only with people who look, smell, and talk like us? I believe that under the influence of the Spirit, when God's people step out with compassion for all kinds of others, a beautiful reversal of the effects of sin and brokenness in our world can take place. I've seen it happen, and I believe in it. Everybody okay? Two more. (laughs) 
Application number three is this. We're called to remember all that God has done. During Micah's courtroom trial, God declares to his people, remember all that I have done, because then you will know what I can and I will do for you in the future. In my opinion, a tragedy of the global pandemic faith-wise is how it's disrupted our spiritual habits and rhythms with God. When in-person church stopped, I heard many people say to me, it's nice to have my Sunday mornings free. And I fear our corporate spiritual memory has faded some. Add to that the negative press the church continues to face over treatment of LGBTQ2SP++ people, complicit involvement in Indian residential schools, and our polarized church responses to COVID. And there's a lot to turn people off on church, church people, the Christian message, and the mission of Jesus in general. I feel particularly concerned for the faith of our next generations. Our church seems to have emerged with a distinctly different core. These days, our Sunday gatherings appear to be missing a good chunk of youth and young adults, especially those aged 13 to 40. My generation hasn't done a good job of embodying, modeling, or passing on the memory of all that God can and has done for us. People of North Carolina Church, God's eternal faithfulness is the bedrock that forms the relationship he invites us into. We must remember all that God has done for us and pass it on. When facing his death, fourth century, Christian Bishop Ambrose was most famously asked by a congregant, aren't you afraid? To which, remembering God's faithfulness throughout his life, Ambrose reminded and responded and said, No, I am not afraid, for we have a good master. This we know. God is faithful and God is good. And this is the message we must remember and need to regularly remind family, friends, and neighbors about. Fourth and final application is the call to walk humbly with God. In the message, Eugene Peterson phrases it this way, don't take yourself too seriously. Take God seriously. Prophet Micah confronts the people, you are guilty of making your own private blends of religion, which are really just you expecting God to rubber stamp your whims and desires and calling that faith. This disarms our belief in our own self-righteousness and challenges the idea that our progressivism, how we particularly upstanding West Coast citizens who are open-minded and drive our electric vehicles are somehow more highly evolved spiritually than most. And reality is, our world can smell fake Christianity a mile away. Both these subtle attitudes, self-righteousness, And smug progressivism undermine and severely limit the mission of Jesus through our lives. About 15 years ago, North Shore Alliance Church began to have a vision to try and meet the need for affordable housing in our city. And many of you prayed that God would open a door, literally. Then finally, back in 2015, we found a benevolent landlord willing to rent their property to us down on Keith Road. 
to house people with barriers to housing. Along the way, we connected with Lazarus Community Society to form the nonprofit necessary to make this vision a reality. Somewhat pridefully, I think we thought that if we just housed homeless people, we'd be doing them a big favor and we'd transform their lives and we'd all live happily ever after. <laughs> we were dead wrong. It was incredibly difficult. And in several cases, our housing people made our relationship with them worse and our lives and theirs more miserable. And we were severely humbled. In 2018, tails between our legs, we were about to close down. We approached Canadian Mental Health, Health Association, who had years before said they were not interested in working with us. This time they said, wait a minute, don't shut down. Long story short, God had other plans. We've learned a lot. It's far from perfect, but we've started to see some positive results. And today we have a partnership with Canadian Mental Health Association, Health Connections, Cap Church, and over the past few years we've expanded to three community houses, housing more than a dozen people in our city. And Lazarus Society, mostly made up of North Shore Alliance congregants, handles all the business and operations of our three houses and employs our three house pastors. So, what's it look like to walk humbly with God? One writer suggests, it's when we know what we are and we have no hope of becoming anything better except through the mercy of God. And I sense from God a renewed call in our day to simple faith and obedience in him and in his way. God desires our heart and always welcomes our humble surrender and repentance. The Father's arms are open wide. We do well, and the mission of Jesus moves forward best when we live in this humble posture. Amen. I'd like to invite the worship team forward now. And before we have communion, they're going to lead us in a song. Throughout the week, I've felt like this is the song that God wants to use to prepare our hearts. It's a song of repentance. It's a song of coming to God. Let's stand now and pray together, and then we'll sing. Thanks for listening, by the way. God, we thank you for your incredible faithfulness, your goodness, your love, and your mercy. And God, we come to you today in humble repentance. We thank you that your arms are always open wide to us. So Lord, we pray now, Spirit of God, that you administer to us, that you would show us places in our hearts where we need to come to you. Guide our time now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.